0: Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, the death toll continues to rise from the coronavirus in China as the Canadian government looks at options to evacuate 126 Canadians who want to leave that country but need the government's help. The parliamentary budget officer says the government's new tax cut will cost $2.5 billion more in lost revenue than forecast and warns the biggest tax relief won't go to lower-income Canadians. The British government is giving Huawei limited access to its 5G network. How could that decision affect Canada's pending decision on whether to allow Huawei to take part in this country's new high-speed mobile network. And MPs debate a conservative call for the Auditor-General to investigate the multi-billion dollar infrastructure fund to find out if it's actually working as promised. But we begin tonight with the latest developments in the new coronavirus outbreak in China and the few cases here in Canada and what Canadians need to know. There's been another presumptive Canadian case, this time in British Columbia. That's along with two confirmed cases in the province of Ontario. A number of other cases are being investigated as well. The federal cabinet was briefed today by Canada's top public health officials overseeing the safety measures being taken in this country. In China, the death toll has now risen to more than 100 and is spreading outside of Hubei province, where the new coronavirus was first detected last month. The United States and other countries, including France and Japan, they're planning to airlift their citizens from the affected cities in China. And the Canadian government announced today it is exploring its options for trying to get 126 Canadians uh, out of China who've made it clear they want to leave the country. Here are Canada's Minister of Health and Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs speaking to reporters with an update on Parliament Hill this afternoon.
1: The latest number that I have, because I think Canadians watching us should understand, it's a dynamic situation, Um, we encourage Canadians to register on the website because that's the best way for us to uh, inform them as quickly as possible about recent developments. So what we have now, of the 250 Canadians who have registered, 126 have uh, signified their wish for assisted repatriation. Uh, Because it's the middle of the night, we're trying to contact everyone to assess their each individual needs. We're looking also at options with different nations. As you know, different nations are looking at how they can repatriate these people back to their countries. Uh, That's the consultation we're doing right now. We're looking at all options to provide the best consular service we can. Uh, And we will come back to you as soon as I have more details because you appreciate we just finished cabinet. We had that. I need to go back. Make sure that I have the latest information so that we can come back to you in due course. But are you talking about sending a plane or, or hitching lines? I mean, are these people that
2: are in quarantine type areas Why don't or they can't get out of the city? is it because they are sick that they're reaching out to you? So maybe I can take that, uh, that uh, question. Uh, quite frankly, we don't know yet what the situation of those individuals are. As Minister Champagne has indicated, that's part of the process to reach into, uh, uh, to, to speak with the individuals to find out what kinds of situations they're in, what their needs are. And uh, you know, uh, and assess and assess from that space what kinds of help we could provide. I will also say that part of the risk uh, to travel to that area is not necessarily about contracting the coronavirus, but really, quite frankly, the strict quarantine the the entire region is under. So, for example, uh, people that are visiting to that region or traveling in that region may be having a hard time accessing supplies that they need. They may be having a hard time getting around the community. They may be having a hard time moving from one region to another. Uh, they may have family in other areas that are isolated. So this is the work that he will be doing with his team to assess exactly what kinds of supports the Canadians that are reaching out to us need. But when you talk about repatriating people who
3: say they want to be repatriated, are you talking about sending a plane? Or are you talking about charters, getting them on, say, a British plane or an American plane? I
1: would what say yeah, exactly. all options that you said are on the table. We're just looking at the most efficient way and talking to them first to understand the minister was very clear we need to understand their medical condition their specific wishes but in order for us to have a tailored response to the canadians which are there which are seeking assistance we do need to talk to them assess their condition and on the basis of that information we will tailor our response in accordance with the but needs. if a canadian wants to come home you
3: are saying you will get them home
1: What I'm saying at this stage is that every Canadian which has reached out to us for consular assistance will receive it. The way we will deliver the assistance, obviously, is going to depend on the options that we're looking at. We're looking, like I said, with different countries. We're also talking to the Chinese government, obviously. So uh, we will be doing whatever we need to uh, offer the best consular service we can, but it's a very dynamic situation. I wish I could answer all your questions, but before I can answer your question, we need to talk to them. We need to figure out all the options, the best option, and then we'll come back to Monsieur you. Point, I think, I think, I think
2: the question, Mr. Champagne, is dit, euh, Il faut évaluer la condition de ces gens-là, voir s'il y en a qui sont malades. Je pense que la question, c'est s'il y en a qui sont malades, est-ce qu'on les rapatrie ou pas?
1: Ça va faire partie des, des discussions. Évidemment, on va discuter avec les experts, avec la ministre Aïdou, pour voir, comme je vous dis, la première étape, et c'est dans le milieu de la nuit. C'est pour ça que les gens qui nous regardent à la maison doivent comprendre. Il y a des informations qu'on a, mais il y a des informations qu'on doit obtenir, évidemment, de ces gens-là pour être capable d'analyser quelle est la meilleure façon qu'on peut les aider. C'est, c'est exactement ce Donc, qu'on c'est est en train de faire. Donc, ce pas tout le monde qui le demande? Bien, écoutez, on verra. Je ne peux pas spéculer à date sur la meilleure façon. Ce que je vous dis, c'est que sur 126 personnes qui ont demandé d'avoir de l'assistance, évidemment, il y a des cas qui sont différents les uns des autres. On est en train de répertorier, évidemment, ce que les gens nous demandent. On est en train de regarder toutes les options qui ont été proposées parler avec les autorités chinoises pour obtenir les autorisations qu'on a besoin et ensuite de ça on sera capable de vous dire exactement le plan qu'on mettra en place pour assister J'ai les le
2: The question around uh, what happens when they come back to Canada. Those are exactly the details that our departments are working on together. We are uh, this is a utmost priority for me is to make sure that we're protecting the health and safety of Canadians whether they're abroad or whether they're here and so we're working right now with our officials to develop a plan and that's why we'll come back to you as soon as we have that plan to give you the details. You know that I've been committing to you full transparency and that is exactly what I'll continue to provide but I'm not going to at this point speculate about what kinds of measures might be in place because we still need to assess uh, the needs of the the people that are in China and also uh, what capacity we have at at a at a national level. What's the, the Canadian position on Donald Trump's proposal for the Middle East? East? I'll answer. Just give me a second. We'll let, and I'll go to do it, and then uh, we're. Important. Maybe uh, if the... we could finish the coronavirus, and then I will leave yeah, you, Mr. Chantine. It's and... not
4: a question of going in an orderly fashion. I asked the well, question.
5: Well, I have a question see. about the coronavirus in British Columbia. It's not, not, not my
4: topic here the press bill. Okay, maybe
5: we can start with the What can you tell us about the coronavirus, that
2: new case in British Columbia right now? Right. So, first of all, I spoke with Minister Dix earlier, my counterpart. Uh, in British Columbia and reviewed the case with him Uh, it it, the case is similar to Ontario in that the person traveled uh, from Wuhan he had uh, no symptoms when he arrived home he began to feel ill and he reached out to his health care provider but given that he had undergone all of the information at the airport and knew what to do he also advised his health care provider that he had recently visited Wuhan which allowed the infectious disease protocol to be placed uh, in in the clinic that he visited. And now he's under isolation and and, and, and being observed for Further worsening of his condition. Um, the lab, uh, the national lab has not confirmed the the case uh, yet, but we are very confident in BC's and do lab. You know yet if they, do you know yet if they were if she was on the same flight as the people who were in Toronto or is it completely different flights? My understanding it's a different flight. I will uh, I will also say uh, to answer the question about quarantine and isolation. I, I spoke about this earlier, but I do want to be very clear that quarantine is only appropriate when people are asymptomatic and right now there is no evidence that this disease is spread when people do not have symptoms. So isolation is a situation that occurs when people have the symptoms, and he is isolated.
0: Well, let's follow up on the Canadian government's response to the coronavirus outbreak. From the foyer of the House tonight, I'm joined by Darren Fisher, the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Health. Tamara Jansen is the Labour critic for the official opposition and a member of the Commons Health Committee, which we should note uh, is expected to meet tomorrow to examine the government's response to the uh, coronavirus outbreak. And Peter Julian is the House Leader for the NDP. It's good to see you all. Uh, We've heard at length from the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Minister of Health on Canada's response so far. Uh, So let's begin with the opposition here. Uh, Tamara Jansen, the government says it's working on a plan to help Canadians in China who want to get out of the affected areas and can't uh, because of restrictions on commercial travel there from that area. How do you think the government is handling all of this?
6: Well, I think we're very concerned that uh, there's, there's not a lot of communication going on. Uh, I have constituents in my riding. Their daughter is uh, in Wuhan with her husband and son. She's eight months pregnant. She's not able to travel. If she goes into labor, um, she's not able to freely get to the hospital. So this is a you know, very urgent situation. And um, after question period, I actually ran ho- back to the office to call her mom and see, you know, have you heard from anyone? And she says she hasn't heard anything. So um, I, I did a little piece with uh, those constituents. Last night we did a mm-hmm. Skype call and I was able to find out from them a, a bit bit more. And I think it's just really concerning. They would like to have a communicated plan. And I think that's, it, it's going too slow. We're dragging our feet.
0: Well, so let's delve into this a little bit because the, the, the government has said today that I think it's 245 Canadians have put themselves on Uh, have registered uh, with the Canadian Consular Services in China and 126 of those people have made it clear they want to get home. So are your constituents, as far as you know, are they part of the 126 who said we want help to get back to Canada because according to the government today all of those people have have been communicated with?
6: Well, I sure hope they are. (laughs) I think it's very, very important that that Canada is making sure that everybody's accounted for. I mean, these are healthy people just holed up in their apartments waiting for the government to come and get them home.
0: Okay, Peter, Julian, how do you think the government's handled
7: this? I think it's been uh, very slow. The government has not responded as quickly as it should have. I also have a constituent who is in the area in Wuhan. There has not been a- enough communication with them. When you see uh, the extent that the other countries have been able to mobilize and put in place an action plan like the United States and France, uh, Canada's uh, lack of response and very uh, slow response, I think, is is quite remarkable. I'm also concerned on the other end, Peter, and that's uh, here in Canada. We're Seeing cases emerging of, of the virus. Uh, I am not, I don't believe the federal government is responding as quickly as it should, particularly, I think, to protect uh, health care workers. We know from the SARS virus outbreak uh, a few years ago that it's uh, health, health workers that often are mostly subject in the front lines uh, to a virus that it seems to be as, as quickly contagious as this one is. And so I, I don't think the government is responding very quickly at either end, either with Canadians in the quarantine zone in China, or, or, but also taking the precautions that they need to with the provincial health authorities
0: okay, here in I Canada. W- I want to come back to some of the, the, the how the government's dealing with this uh, on the ground in this country. But Mr. Fisher, let's stay with... Uh, What we heard today in terms of the government trying to mobilize uh, a plan to deal with the Canadians. Uh, So far, 126 of them have said they want help getting home. Uh, What's your response to your two colleagues here who say you're not moving quickly enough? Well, as Minister Champagne said today, um, it's
8: important that if you are a Canadian, you need to register with your consulate and you need to... we'll, We'll then take every precaution to ensure the absolute safety of all the Canadians in China. Right. What about the people who want to get home? Well, again, we need to have them reach out. They reach out, they register, and we'll take all those steps necessary to get them home. Well,
0: 120, the the government said today, the the minister said today, 126 people have communicated to the government. They want help getting home. What's the plan? I don't know what the plan is per se, but
8: Minister Champagne has got this handled, and we are going to make sure we can get those Canadians home. All right. uh, Tamara Jansen,
0: are you confident in that?
6: That's a little bit shocking. I mean, this, this is extremely urgent, and we really need to get these people home. So to not have a plan yet after all these other countries have managed, I know my constituent said it feels like Canada is five days behind everybody else. So we've got to move forward, and we've got to move fast. Do, do
0: we acknowledge there are challenges there? I mean, Absolutely. I mean, commercial traffic, I think, has been shut down out of 18 airports in the, in the affected areas. So uh, how, how easy is it to... Presumably, this would have to be, I I guess, a military flight of some kind. We'd have to get a plane in there, get approval from China to do that. Uh, How quickly can that happen?
6: Are you asking me? Yeah,
0: go ahead, finish. and Then I'll (laughs) get to Mr. Julian and Mr. Fisher.
6: I'm just tremendously shocked that we wouldn't have at least that little bit of information of what are the options. I know I, I heard that they were looking at options. Well, what are those options? I would love to hear, you know, what are the plans?
0: And what about you, Mr. Julian? Um, uh... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm stunned,
7: Peter, quite frankly. I, I expected that the government would have answers this week. They obviously still do not have any answers at all. This isn't a bean counting exercise where you can count up, oh, we've, uh, we've had 120 people si- uh, phone us, so we've succeeded in some way. This is an emergency situation where Canadians are at some risk, and there, there are ways that Canada can, can organize, but Canada can also work with countries that have been a lot more adept and a lot quicker in the response. For example, the United States. And there hasn't been any sort of outreach from Canada to say, in the case of the United States, if they're evacuating citizens, for example, can Canadians uh, be part of you know, that evacuation? back effort? on a flight. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I just, I am stunned with the lack of response from the government. And they seem to be pat, patting themselves on the back for having done nothing uh, but open the phone lines so that they can find out how many people are impacted. What about that, Mr. That's Fisher? That's the very first
0: step. Would it be reasonable to expect at this point that we would have heard from the government today saying... Uh, Yeah, here's here's what we're doing. We've lined up a military flight. We are the government did say they're in constant contact with Chinese officials trying to figure out uh, what the plan will be I guess when the plan is put together and and how it'll be executed but is it unreasonable to think that by now uh, there we'd be hearing about a plan that there's a military plane on standby ready to go and so on. Well Peter the level of cooperation between all
8: the countries, all the organizations, the World Health Organization, the level of core cooperation and coordination on this relatively new case has been unfounded. 2003, we were nowhere near this. We didn't have this level of cooperation. We didn't have this level of collaboration. And, and this is a different world from the days of SARS. We've learned so much from that,
0: and we will be putting a plan together to make sure that we ensure the safety of all Canadians. But uh, the comments from your colleagues, do you, do you know if, if, if either the, the Ministry of Health or the, presumably the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I guess maybe Ministry of Defence, uh, has been reaching out to other countries to say, look, can we get some Canadians on your plane? They, they want to get home. Can we, do you know what's being done? Again, the level of collaboration between these countries is is working
8: very, very well and there's a plan in place to move forward to, to make sure that we ensure the safety of all these Canadians. Peter. Yeah, Go ahead, Mr. Gillian. Peter,
7: the lesson from SARS is rapid response. This is a, uh, a virus that can be very contagious and be transmitted very quickly. And we've seen a government now that has been dragging its uh, its heels for well over a week. I, this is, the, they obviously have not learned the lessons of yeah. SARS and I'm actually more disturbed hearing this interview than I was before. I assumed that there was some information the government would give out at some point. It just seems to me to be, uh, a catastrophic meltdown. The government seems to be more inclined to give talking points than actually do something to help the Canadians that are in China and to protect Canadians here. If, so we've,
6: if we've learned so much and there's so much collaboration, we should know something by now of how, some of our options, how are we getting some people home? Uh,
0: so uh, Tamara Jansen, you, you talked about, uh, and Mr. Julian did as well, but you've got some constituents there. You've been in contact with them, yeah. Tamara Jansen. Uh, have, you, have you gone to... Uh, The Minister of Foreign Affairs or the government side today to say, look, here's how to reach them. Here's where they are. Uh, They want your help.
6: I'm going to have to do that right now. So as soon as we're done, I'm on my way.
0: Okay. Uh, let's talk about what's happening in this country then. And Tamara Johnson, let me let me stay with you. Uh, What concerns do you have about the screening process? I know that members of your party have raised uh, some of these questions about whether the government's doing an adequate job or public health officials are doing an adequate job at airports, for instance, of, of making sure people are properly screened.
6: Well, I think we, we're not watching as people are coming off planes. I don't see people wiping down railings. I mean, we know what happens on cruise ships when we don't take care of these things. It's so important that we actually learn something from what happened last time and actually make changes. So, I mean, like I say, a simple thing like wiping down railings in the airport, like we have to move forward Well, I mean, what, what
0: more should be done? As, as far as you know, it's, do, do you think that every plane arriving at a Canadian airport from from a Chinese city that all, all those passengers ought to be taken through a separate screening system. I mean,
6: at the very least, as they're walking through, we should be checking temperatures. It's a very simple technology. It's not that. The health
0: minister said today that, that, that that's been proven that it's not not effective, that it it, it doesn't necessarily tell you whether someone's sick. Uh... It's,
6: it's more than nothing.
0: All right, Mr. Julian, what about your views on, on this? I know you've talked mm-hmm. about health workers. Uh, is there uh, more yes. that needs to be done with passengers arriving? From China at Canadian airports.
7: Uh, well, I, I think it's making sure that all the healthcare facilities actually have have what is required for rapid testing and making sure uh, that they can detect uh, cases. We we just heard. Uh, in, in the area of the Lower Mainland, a case of a, a person who went into a healthcare facility in the Lower Mainland of British Columbia and was not diagnosed and was only diagnosed when he traveled back to Shanghai. And so uh, there, there is a big disconnect. We're certainly seeing this from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. It's uh, devastating that there's absolutely no plan in place. But for the Minister of Health, uh, I, I don't get a sense on the ground that they're taking any measures either. This isn't about talking points, Peter. This is about taking action and making sure that things are provided for and that we can have people that are symptomatic and yet not be diagnosed in, in a healthcare facility is, is very disturbing. And so these are the kinds of things. This should be treated uh, as an important, uh, important initiative right off the top. And the government should be on top of it. And instead, the government just seems to
0: be Putting out talking points, okay. Mr. Fisher. Uh, uh, will you be at the health committee meeting tomorrow? Yes. Okay. At uh, 3:30 tomorrow are, afternoon. Are we likely to get some some more details? I think. Who's going to be at that meeting tomorrow in terms of uh, government? officials and public health officials? I'm know?
8: not sure who the government officials who are going to be there tomorrow. the um, you know, Today we had our, our first general pre-meeting of the health committee and tomorrow will be the first official committee meeting. So I'm looking forward to that and getting the work started on this project.
0: Oh, okay and so is, it, is, it, is there a good chance we'll have more answers about the government response tomorrow? I would say there'd be a very good very good chance, Mary Jansen. What do you do? You know who's going to be there, and what do you want to ask of them?
6: Well, I know I'm going to be there, and I'm going to be asking them how fast are we going to get our people out of there? Because it's very important that we get our healthy Canadians out of this situation.
0: Okay, uh, Mr. Julian, let me give a final word to you. If, if uh, your, your, your party was running things. Uh, what would you be doing differently here?
7: Uh, well, Don Davies, who's uh, our health critic and, of course, a senior member of the health committee, will be asking a lot of t- t- tough questions tomorrow to officials. Uh, but uh, you, you need to treat this as an emergency and make sure that uh, the ministries are moving forward on an action plan, not just counting heads and saying, gee, we've accomplished something, because we know now that 120 people are under threat. We should be doing something for those Canadians in China, and we should be taking precautions in Canada. And I, I right now, don't see either of those actions happening. All
0: right. Thank you, all three of you, for your uh, time tonight. Uh, we'll continue to follow the story. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Well, the British government has decided to give Huawei, the Chinese telecom company, a limited role to play in Britain's new 5G high speed mobile network. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson rejected uh, US pressure to ban Huawei in Great Britain. The US is also pressuring Canada to ban the telecom giant from this country's 5G network. But So far the Canadian government has made no decision on that. It is the uh, last of the five eyes intelligence sharing countries, Canada is, that has yet to decide on Huawei. In a moment, we'll hear from Canada's Minister of Public Safety on the British decision and from a cybersecurity expert, but first, a little background.
5: Huawei is a Chinese technology company headquartered in Shenzhen. It is one of the world's biggest vendors of smartphones and provides wide-scale telecommunications equipment. They are currently in talks to provide Canada's new 5G cellular network. Many critics have taken issue with allowing Huawei into westernized cell networks, accusing it of being a front for the Chinese state. Huawei's telecommunications technology is one of the cheapest on the market, as it uses fewer antennas to carry out cellular functions. This means that a higher amount of information can be transferred directly between consumers and a cellular network's core, creating a potential security risk for users' privacy. The core of cellular networks functions as the brain, or a central switchboard. It's the hub that routes messages and calls between cell towers, authenticates subscribers, transfers data between parties, and keeps track of usage. The UK has announced that Huawei will be allowed to be part of their 5G cell networks, but not allowed to be part of the network's security-critical core. Canada remains undecided as it grapples with diplomatic and trade issues with China, but the U.S. has banned the company, accusing it of spying for the Chinese government.
0: Well, here's how Canada's ministers of public safety and innovation reacted to the British decision today to allow Huawei to build some parts of its high-speed mobile network, and how that might affect Canada's long-awaited decision on Huawei. And we'll also hear reaction from the conservatives as well.
2: Like, are you
5: getting some pressure from the United States? Is it playing at all? Well,
4: engaging in our
3: allies is to understand what approaches they are taking. So, of course, there's a political dimension to it from that perspective. But we have been very clear that we're going to take the appropriate time that we need to make a decision that's in the best interest of Canadians to make sure that they feel safe and secure.
9: Uh, Can we have an have idea when the decision could be coming as soon as we as soon
10: as we have all the information and the discussion the important discussions that need to take place and, and although the security concerns are very significant, we also want to make sure that, that we get full consideration to what is best for Canadians what's best for, for in, the industry environment best in our relationships with, with our allies and partners, and so all of those things that we're working on right now. Mr. Blair, is
11: yeah. it a complication uh, our relationship with China and the fact that they are detaining two Canadians? Is I, that As I've indicated in?
10: there are a number of complexities to this decision and they're all being taken and given full consideration and taken into account. What's
11: unique
3: about the Canadian environment?
10: There are many things. I, I th- well, like I we think... don't know.
3: You
9: tell us. You know
10: them. Well, well again, there's, there's important discussions taking place about what is, will be right for Canadians and when that decision has been made, I'll be happy sir, to sir, share with you.
3: Our Conservative Party, our leader, um, believes strongly that this is an issue that uh, we need to ban Huawei from having access to our 5G network in the interest of national security, national defense, and protecting the privacy of Canadians.
2: What have fractional relationships, though, I think, with our allies, also the U.S.? I mean, people that have moved forward and said, hey, let's look at this again. This seems like it's safe for
3: our people. Well, at the same time, we've got Australia that has already banned it within the five eyes. Japan has already banned uh, YY as well. So uh, we don't have, uh, of course, as official opposition, all the information that, that the U.K. Uh, seems to uh, use to make in their decision. But we do have to... Uh, have the government to, to uh, you know, pick up their game. They've been ragging the puck. And let's finally look at uh, how this is going to impact upon the Canadian relationship, especially we have a special relationship with the United States and responsibility in continental security.
0: In a statement released today, Huawei Canada welcomed the decision today by the British government and looked ahead to the pending decision from the Canadian government on any role for Huawei in Canada's 5G wireless network. In that statement, Huawei writes, We respect the independence and fairness of the government of Canada's decision-making process on 5G approval, notwithstanding the efforts of the Trump administration to dictate that decision. Canadians should expect that any decision taken on this important issue is based on technology and security considerations, not politics. It is important to remember that in our 10 years of operation in Canada, there has never been a security incident or a lapse of any sort, not one. Phil Calvert is a senior fellow with the China Institute at the University of Alberta and a former diplomat, a Canadian diplomat in China and Asia. And he joins me this evening to talk about uh, this uh, Huawei decision in Great Britain and implications possibly for Canada. Mr. Calvert, good to speak with you tonight. Thanks for taking the time.
11: Uh, Thanks for inviting me, Peter.
0: I want to get to Canada and Huawei in a moment, but let's start with the UK decision today to allow limited access for Huawei to Britain's new 5G network. Why do you think Boris Johnson has given this access, even over the objections of the Americans?
11: Well, I suspect that what's happening is that Boris Johnson and his government are trying to find some kind of balance between two very difficult kinds of decisions or or, or paths. on the one hand, as in Canada, I, I imagine the telecom companies they like Huawei equipment. It's it's cheaper, and so there's probably I'm, there's pressure from the telecom companies in Britain to adopt this to use uh, adopt Huawei uh, allow Huawei 5G into the country. And uh, on the other hand, he's got to address the security issues and satisfy the United States uh, by uh, addressing their security concerns as part of a Five Eyes network. So uh, what he's done is try and find a balance, and I. Uh, uh, the U.S. doesn't seem to appreciate that, and they have reacted very strongly against his decision, as you may have noticed. Right.
0: I mean, the calculation he's making is that that it's possible to allow Huawei a role in the 5G network, but, but keep yeah. it away from sensitive data and, and protect British citizens. Uh, are you convinced of that?
11: Well, I'm not convinced of that. It's interesting, you know, Canadian security agencies disagree on that as well. Uh, you know, back in November, uh, it was revealed that uh, CSIS was quite... Uh, uh, against uh, any uh, allowing Huawei uh, licensing, allow, allowing Huawei 5G uh, equipment into Canada. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the CSE appear, appeared to think that they can mitigate the uh, the uh, the threat. Uh, U- their UK is ask is a- allowing about 35 percent. They say of uh, uh, of, of its uh, infrastructure uh, to be uh, accessed by Huawei. They've agreed to work with other Five Eyes members to. Uh, Find other suppliers, but uh, um, I don't think I'm, I'm not convinced that that's the, the that this threat can be mitigated.
0: All right, let, let's talk about Huawei in Canada. We're still waiting, of sure. course, for a decision from the Canadian government on whether Huawei will be part of the five five G wireless network uh, development in this country. How do you think this decision by Britain today affects the Canadian government's, uh, you know, not to get ahead of myself, decision on this, but thinking on this? Does some have suggested? Look, this this gives them a pathway to go ahead and do what Great Britain's done, because Great Britain Great Britain's done it. What do you think? Well, you know, it raises the
11: issue again, puts more pressure on Canada to uh, to uh, uh, um, make a decision on this. Uh, certainly, I imagine that. Uh, Telecom companies are looking at this and saying, okay, Britain's done this. So as you said, Britain's done this. So this is a path forward. But we have to be very careful on this. And there's really two aspects to the question. One is the security side of things. And uh, our relationship with the United States uh, and our as members of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing network is very important. And uh, the U.S. has made it very clear uh, to Canada and to others that uh, they really don't want to see five uh, or Huawei access to our system and that would threaten this uh, this network and our place in the network. So we have to be very careful about that. But the other part of this is a political question. You know, we've got two Canadians uh, who are in jail. Uh, uh, they were arbitrarily detained uh, unjustly in reaction to the extradition proceedings, legal extradition proceedings against uh, the Huawei's chief financial officer, Meng Wanzhou. So for the for the Canadian government to to uh, allow Huawei access, uh, to uh, to approve Huawei while these people are in jail is uh, is politically very dangerous, I would think. And in, in fact, the message should be that uh, to Huawei is that we're not even going to look at your application, we're not even going to consider your application while these, these two Canadians are in jail. And, and then we'll give it some thought. But um, I believe if a government is, you know, decides to approve Huawei now, there's going to be tremendous backlash, and justifiably so.
0: Right. Did you, do you think the, I mean, a lot of questions today for the government about why this is taking so long. Uh, everybody else is making decisions on Huawei and the Canadian government says it still needs to do more investigation, more research. Uh, do you think there's a direct link between the time it's taking to make this decision and the detention of those two Canadians in China?
11: Well, I'd be surprised if there weren't some kind of direct link just because it makes the situation so complicated. As I said, it makes it more than a security question. It means it makes it a question related to our bilateral relationship. And uh, uh, I would imagine there's great division between the different uh, players in this as to how we should proceed.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to... It's, I mean, uh, you're the diplomat, but it seems to me it would be hard, to, hard not to think that this has come up in conversations with the Chinese. Sure. Uh, that, you know, approving Huawei... Uh, They've made it clear that the detention of Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei executive, is directly connected to the fate of those Canadians. Uh, Wouldn't be unrealistic, would it, to think that uh, the the conversation around approving Huawei is part of that uh, discussion or negotiation, too?
11: Yeah, I don't know if China has sort of put that into the mix in terms of uh, getting released for the two Canadians, but uh, their focus has been on the release of Meng Wanzhou. And publicly, they claim, of course, that there's no connection, but but it's understood that there is that this is a retaliatory action. Uh, listen, I think this is a, a, a difficult uh, time for them. But um, you know, one of the things that you've seen is that China has become increasingly uh, 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 aggressive in its public discourse on this. In other countries, you know, the, Germ- the Chinese ambassador to Germany threatened that if Huawei wasn't approved, that this would seriously undermine the relationship. So. So it really is a political decision, and, and no matter how you frame it in commercial or other terms, well, what other people, or others want to frame it, this is a commercial decision or a security decision. It is political for us, and it will be political for others as well. And if you think it's not political, tell that to a Canadian canola farmer.
0: Right. Let me, let me come back. You touched on it. I don't want to circle back to it. What, what would be the consequences of saying yes to Huawei uh, and 5G uh, in this country while those two Canadians are in jail in China?
11: Well, first of all, it would send the wrong message to China uh, that, that uh, uh, okay, you know, you can actually, uh, you know, uh, lock our people up and we're not going to take any serious action against you. Secondly, um, it would, I think, imperil our security relationship with the United States. I don't think they're messing around. I think Pompeo called this a, a monstrous decision on the part of the UK. Uh, you know, So uh, he's, of course, uh, not given to, to uh, timid statements, but I think this is... Uh, It's been roundly criticized in the United States, and I think we should be looking at that very seriously.
0: All right, Mr. Calvert, always good to get your perspective. Thanks for it again this evening. Uh, We'll talk again soon. Take care. Take care, Peter. Well, it was the first piece of legislation the Trudeau government tabled after being re-elected last fall, a tax cut for Canadians. But the parliamentary budget officer says it will end up costing the government two and a half billion dollars more in lost revenues than predicted. And higher income Canadians could end up benefiting more than lower income Canadians. The tax uh, reduction comes from increasing the basic personal exemption. Uh, Every Canadian gets that on his or her income tax. And critics also say that giving up seven billion dollars in tax revenues could have paid for other things like a national universal PharmaCare program. CPAC's Martin Stringer spoke with the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux, about his latest report.
9: Monsieur Giroux, let's start with the, um, with the amounts. You have found a significantly more expensive program than the government had forecast.
12: Yes, at maturity we find that it's about $900 million more expensive, so it's close to $7 billion per year at maturity, $6.8, 6900000000 billion. And that's five years out, so to
9: get there, some people have suggested that that will be $2.5 billion more.
12: Well, if you add the differences each and every year between now and then, it adds up to a significantly higher amount, obviously.
9: Is that a source of concern, that the government got the figures so off?
12: Uh, it could be a cause for concern, especially for a government that aims to meet the target it has set for itself in terms of deficit, um, but it's also due to a couple of factors that are beyond the control of the government. For example, uh, we find that in between the two estimates, there has been slightly uh, higher or faster growth in in employment so more people working means a larger tax base and if you provide a tax cut to more people then it's slightly more expensive obviously and there's also a technical issue we have uh, since received an updated version of the the software and the tools we use to provide these estimates so more refined estimates lead to or more refined tools rather leads to uh, more refined estimates but there's also a a difference arising from the difference between what we costed uh, today and the estimate we provided during the campaign uh, it was a slightly different parameters back then
9: i guess the big question too is if the government is going to forego about seven billion dollars a year in tax revenues where is it going to go um, this is a broad-based tax exemption that applies to everyone what income category is going to get the best the most benefit it looks as if it's upper
12: middle class people uh, indeed because it's uh, a tax uh, a tax cut that is a basic personal amount. In theory, it should apply to everybody, but it benefits mostly those that are middle income because they benefit uh, from from these tax exemptions, uh, due in good part to, uh, to the composition of families. For example, if you're middle income family with a stay-at-home spouse, then you can claim the dependent tax credit with the higher basic personal amount for that person.
9: So what's ta- what
12: tax bracket are we
9: looking at? What income bracket are we
12: looking at? Uh, we're looking at around $100,000, But uh, everybody who makes above $15,000 will benefit from that. So we found that about 900,000 people will be taken off the tax rolls and 21 million persons will uh, benefit from lower taxes as a result of that change.
9: So this is benefiting a lot of people, 21 million people, Mm -hmm. and 900,000 are are going to be taken off the tax rolls, but the biggest benefit is going to go to upper middle class earners.
12: Yes, uh, and that's the eternal conundrum when you provide a tax cut. Uh, First of all, you have to pay tax to benefit from a tax cut, and and that's something that is inherent in our tax system.
9: There uh, is also significant uh, savings for a uh, category of people over $150,000. So why would they still qualify?
12: Yes, and that may, may sound counterintuitive when people above the cutoff threshold for the basic personal amount still have benefits from that. And it arises from the fact that people with low income dependents in that income threshold, for example, a stay-at-home spouse, or a children, when a child when somebody is a lone parent, a child that has virtually no income can claim that person as a dependent uh, with the higher basic personal amount for that dependent person. And that's why some people with higher income than the threshold can still benefit from that measure. Some
9: people uh, who are very keen on giving Canadians tax relief have said this is going to take five years to phase in fully to get to that $7 billion of, of, of tax reductions
12: to Canadians. Uh, thoughts on that? Um, it's a question of policy design. Uh, one can speculate as to the reasons why this is being phased in over a number of years, uh, probably for reasons of affordability, and it also provides some flexibility to the government should, for example, revenues turn to be lower than expected due to an economic downturn, uh, the government could decide to stop it at the level of 2021, 2022. There are no signs of that, but it gives some flexibility to the government to stop the increase. Should there be a, a, a severe downturn, for example?
9: I guess the other big question is when this tax was uh, was announced and, and tabled, uh, some critics said 6 billion, and you're now saying it's closer to $7 billion a year in foregone tax revenues. That money could have gone to, for example, uh, paying down a big part of, say, a National Pharmacare, Universal Pharmacare program. It could have gone to other things. Any thoughts on that?
12: Well, that's the beauty of politics. It's about making choices, and that's why people vote every four years, or three, or two, depending on how often we will uh, vote uh, for the next couple of years.
9: You're not making any political decisions on that?
12: None whatsoever. I'm a non-partisan agent of Parliament. I don't get into politics and policy choices. But you do get into the numbers, and thanks for crunching them with us. My pleasure.
0: Well, the House of Commons spent most of the day today debating a Conservative motion to call in the Auditor-General to investigate the federal government's massive infrastructure program known as the Investing in Canada plan. The opposition parties are supporting the motion and they have enough votes to force the investigation on the government. In a moment, MPs will debate uh, the effectiveness of the $186 billion uh, infrastructure program and just how well it's working to help build communities and jobs across Canada. But first, a little background.
5: The federal government's multi-billion dollar 12-year infrastructure program, the Investing in Canada Plan, promises to rehabilitate, repair, and modernize infrastructure for public transit, rural and northern communities, trade and transportation, and green and social projects. The government committed $14.4 billion in its 2016 budget and $81.2 billion in 2017. An additional $92.2 billion in funding is included through already-existing infrastructure programs. The program depends on provinces spending money, with the federal government matching funds in each region. A report by the Parliamentary Budget Officer in March 2019, however, found that provinces weren't investing nearly as much as the federal government expected them to. The report found that GDP could have been raised an extra 0.15 percent, creating roughly 8,000 jobs. In its examination of the 2018 federal budget, the PBO noted that the Liberals provided an incomplete account of changes to the $186.7 billion infrastructure spending plan. The PBO also requested the new plan, but it does not exist. The Conservatives have been calling on the government to allow Canada's Auditor-General to immediately conduct an audit of the government's Investing in Canada plan, including verifying whether the plan lives up to its stated goals and promises.
0: The issue of the government's infrastructure spending was also the lead question in today's question period in the House of Commons. Let's listen for that.
4: Under this Prime Minister, we have the worst of both worlds. We have the sky-high deficits that he promised, but we don't have the
10: infrastructure spending that was supposed to go along with it. In fact, the Parliamentary Budget Officer has said that the infrastructure plan, quote, does not exist. Instead of spending their hard-earned money on things that will actually grow the economy, all Canadians have instead is reckless borrowing wasteful spending, and sky-high taxes
4: to pay for it all. If the Prime Minister is so sure about his infrastructure plan, will he support our calls to call in the Auditor-General?
9: The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Five years ago, we made a commitment to Canadians to do things differently from the Conservatives who had underinvested in infrastructure for 10 years. We made historic investments in infrastructure to grow the economy and to improve Canadians' quality of life, while Conservatives campaigned on billions of dollars' worth of cuts for much-needed infrastructure across the country. Our plan has over 4,800 projects underway or completed, four times the number of the Conservatives in their last four-year mandate. We're building affordable housing, community centres, libraries and bridges. We're investing in Canada's future.
0: Two years ago, the Parliamentary Budget Officer issued a report to Parliament in which it said the government wasn't providing enough information about why money wasn't flowing to projects in the infrastructure program. Here's the Parliamentary Budget Officer describing his office's concerns today.
12: We found a high level of lapses, which is money that was allocated and not being spent. So we found that there was about a 40% lapse rate, which is quite significant when you're talking about billions of dollars per year.
0: So do Canadians need to know more about how this massive $186 billion infrastructure program has been operated and what exactly has been happening with the funding? Let's bring in three members of Parliament to talk about that. Halifax Liberal MP Andy Fillmore is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of uh, Infrastructure. Edmonton Conservative MP James Cumming is the small business and export promotion critic for the official opposition. And British Columbia New Democrat MP Taylor Backrack is the infrastructure critic for the NDP. Good to see you all. Uh, let me start with you, Mr. Cummings, since this is uh, your party's motion. Why do you want the Auditor General to investigate the government's infrastructure program?
3: Well, it, it's clear to us after looking at the reports from the Parliamentary Budget Officer that uh, the Liberals put forward a program that they're supposed to be accountable to three, three main planks within, and, and it was that they would put out an infrastructure program that would um, increase economic activity, so an increase in GDP, Uh, that it would increase productivity, um, and there would also be some decrease in uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So the the Parliamentary Budget Officer has has said that um, there's no outcomes, there's no accountability on those outcomes. The spending isn't what they said it would be. uh, It's come out a lot slower. And it's really an issue around the accountability of the spending. So what they've done is they've got the spending uh, over a variety of different departments, uh, a bunch of different activities, and it's really hard to determine right. exactly so what's what's this, what the spending what's is. The,
0: what, what do you, what's the what? What's the What are you What are you trying to get to? I mean, uh, it, it, is the suggestion here that uh, something else is being done with the
3: money, or it's just not being managed as efficiently as it should be? Well, I think it's a combination of things. So if we don't know how it's being spent, we don't know what's left to be spent or, or how it's going to be spent. But most important for the taxpayers is to understand if you're going to take uh, borrow money and you're going to put it into infrastructure spending and you say that you're going to use it for very specific tax, then you should be able to demonstrate okay. that you're getting the outcomes. So that, to me, is the fundamental issue here, is that right. we should be able to see what the outcomes are. And the Auditor General should be able to produce a report on that. All right, Mr. Fillmore, um,
0: the, the, your, your government has talked a lot about transparency and the need to uh, open up uh, the process so Canadians can see it. So will, will Liberals support this motion calling? for this official examination of your government's infrastructure program by the Auditor General.
10: So the substance of the motion is really about inviting the Auditor General to take a look at the program and we entirely welcome that. I mean the Auditor General is going to do what he, he's going to do. It's his, it's his mandate. He doesn't need the permission or the, or the, uh, or the urging of, of the House of Commons to do that. Uh, welcome that entirely. Uh, our objection is not to the substance of the, of the motion. Uh, it's one of those little trapdoor motions. So in the preamble, it talks about uh, how in a, in a uh, March 2018 report from the PBO there were found to be some shortcomings that didn't allow him to do his reporting. Uh, what the motion doesn't uh, reflect is that the uh, Parliamentary Budget Officer then approached the party, said, here are the gaps, can you give us the information? We did. Uh, he then uh, released a, an August 2018 updated report uh, and said, this is exactly what I needed. Um, we can see now that the Liberal government is delivering on its historic plan. Uh, to, uh, to improve infrastructure in communities, create jobs, grow the economy, and increase GDP. And all those things have, in fact, Rob, but
0: we, we just heard from the Parliamentary Budget Officer. We talked to him again today. And here's what he told us. We just uh, ran the clip for our audience here. We found a high number of lapses, which was money that was being allocated, but which was not being spent. We found that there was about a 40% lapse rate, which is quite significant when you're talking about billions of dollars a year. Uh, that's what he said.
10: Yeah, so the uh, spending intentions of municipalities and provinces, we find that there is a gap between their intention and their actual ability to invest that money. Now, we can only uh, spend the money on the provinces and municipalities as quickly as they can invest it. Mm-hmm. So there are times, and we, I experienced it in my own riding of Halifax, where we're, we're ready to get the money across the, uh, the finish line, but the tendering processes, the, the internal op- approval processes between the uh, municipalities and the provinces, as uh, uh, described in the bilateral agreements right.
0: I mean, haven't you, run their course you, yet. And you you, and other, I'm not sure I heard you say it specifically, but others in your government have lamented uh, the fact in the past, uh, suggesting that, look, the money is sitting there. Provinces aren't uh, stepping up to the plate to claim it. So uh, leave that for what it is. And Mr. what what's your view here? Will, will the NDP support this motion?
4: I, I think we will. You know, at a high level, Canadians deserve to know that these vast sums of money are going to build... The infrastructure that communities and Canadians need, uh, not line the bank accounts of private investment companies. And there are, are plenty of, of issues, and I think uh, both of these gentlemen would agree that this fund has not exactly rolled out in a, in a smooth way. There have been delays, there have been funds that weren't accounted for, the PBO has had a difficult time getting documents, and I think Canadians deserve to know exactly uh, how these funds have been have been allocated, uh, what the gaps are, what the delays are attributable to, and uh, and that they 're meeting the goals of the program you know one of the goals. That, uh, that I certainly want to see uh, acted on is the reduction of climate pollution. And one thing we, we would hope that would come out of an audit like this is some sense of whether that goal is being achieved with the investments that are being committed to. Right, but are you concerned, you're concerned about where the money's actually going or just that the money's not getting out the
0: door uh, quickly enough? Uh, you know, as we've chatted about a little bit here, uh, it can only go out as fast as municipalities and provinces and and
4: other organizations can use it. Sure. Well, that's really the the responsibility of the federal government is to find a way to ensure that the dollars uh, get to the projects and that those projects get built. Um, I I think part of the, the motion certainly deals with Uh, The second question, which is, uh, are the funds that have been committed and allocated, are they meeting the stated goals of the program? And I think that's uh, one of the really important questions. And as I said, when it comes to reducing climate pollution, we need to know if all of these different commitments and the assessment process that looks at the the different proposals, whether those add up to significant reductions in in climate pollution. Um, Hopefully uh, an audit like this can get to the bottom of that.
0: Okay, so if you go to Infrastructure Canada's uh, site, I think, you see uh, there's a project map there. And, and, and Infrastructure Canada's data shows, uh, taking this off uh, Canadian press report today, uh, Mr. Cumming, more than 52,000 projects have been approved across many dozens of programs, worth more than $57.5 billion in federal funding. Of those, 38,810 projects are underway and federal coffers have paid out nearly
3: $22.7 billion for them. Uh, what do those numbers say to you? Well, it, it says that there's spending that's happening, but it comes back to the premise of the, the way this program was designed. Are all of those projects going to increase productivity? Are they, are they having the economic impact that the Liberals said it would? And, and uh, does it have any p- impact on green- greenhouse gas emissions? So that's what we're really trying to dig into. Are these projects that have been thought through, that they, if, if I was going to put out funding, you would certainly ask the proponent of the funding to say, here are our objectives. And you need to apply on the basis that you will fulfill these objectives. So now that you've asked the question and you've mm. given them the money, you certainly should follow up to see, are they hitting the goalposts that they said they would within
10: that? Okay, context? Mr. Filmer,
3: are, are all those projects hitting those goalposts?
10: Well, I, I would say this. First of all, the criteria, in, in the spirit of open and transparent government, the criteria for all of the projects and all the buckets of, of money within those funds are available on the infrastructure website, and how we're spending the money is all available on the open government portal. So uh, we have to make sure that the outcomes are being measured. If we can't measure the outcome of a project, then we need to think about that for sure, and better is always possible. Uh, But right now we are having a tremendous impact on Canadian communities. Peter, look, there has not been a, a plan to invest in communities in North America since Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal of more than 80 years ago. This is extremely complex, ambitious, change-making work, and we are working hard to get it right. And okay, it's two, huge two things the
0: for you. Let me come back. So based on, let me just circle back to the first question I asked about supporting this motion. So I gather because of the preamble, you won't support it, but it sounds like the opposition parties will. So this will happen if the opposition parties agree to have the Auditor General
10: look into this, Correct if the motion passes yeah. it'll happen and it may happen anyway because of course it's the prerogative of the of the Auditor General and we honestly we will welcome as many eyeballs on our work as we can the more that people can learn about it and know about it and the more we have opportunities to make it better and better day over day we're, we're, we welcome okay that. so is there is there where's the
0: evidence that the infrastructure money uh, whatever's flown out the door at this point is meeting all those goal posts that Mr. Cumming talked about is there something you can point us to that says look go here, you'll see how we've, We. this is what, the, these are the three pillars of the program when it was launched.
10: Here's how it's meeting all those pillars. So in May of 2019, after the program had been up for a few years, the Infrastructure Canada released a an update report showing the progress toward goals and also on how we're spending that money and how much of it remains and how much of it has gone out the door. I expect that to be a, a regular occurrence, those update reports, and that kind of thing will keep on going. So that's one way we can measure and right, see But at impact.
0: $186 billion, would would you welcome an outside... Investigation as done would be done by the Auditor General. I know he, he can do it if he wants to do it. Uh, You've pointed that out. Uh, Absolutely. Would you be be happy to have that so all Canadians
10: can see, look, here's a value for money proposition? As I said at the beginning, very happy to have that happen, and and maybe it will even improve the way we're rolling it out. Uh, That would be wonderful if we we could do an even better job than we already are. What we don't like is the deliberate mischaracterization of a stale report, one that has been superseded uh, in the preamble of the motion. That makes the motion untenable, and frankly, it's misleading to Canadians.
0: All right, Mr. Cumming, uh, let me me hear you on uh you know how what what do you think happens next in the process sounds like the motion will pass uh if all the opposition parties support it and from what i heard in the house today it sounds like they will um then what
3: well it's interesting to say that this is all about transparency so if it was about transparency then we wouldn't have reports from the parliamentary budget officer that are that are critical of the transparency of this government on their outcomes. So uh, really had no choice but to look to a motion to get the auditor in general involved. So I suspect it will pass and that hopefully within a year from now that we'll see a report and we'll be able to dig in to see is this an efficient use of taxpayers' dollars, are we getting the outcomes that it, we're supposed to get and, and, and hold uh, this government to account. That's what we're here to do. All right, Mr. Backrang, let me give you a final, uh, final comment here.
4: Yeah, so it's tremendously complex, and in many ways, we only have one chance to do this right as a country. This is, like I said, a vast... Uh, some of financial resources, and we need to ensure that it's building the infrastructure uh, that we need, that communities across the country need, and that it's meeting the stated goals of the program. And I think having an independent view of the efficiency and the efficacy of the program is really important. And, and to my read, that's what this, this motion and hopefully the audit that it, it results in will create.
0: All right, gentlemen, thank you all for your time tonight. You. Uh, we'll follow the story
4: much. and we'll uh, uh, update
0: it uh, as warranted. Thank you. Thank thank you. Thank you. That's all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the cable public affairs channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching. See you next time.